Let's play a game. List things that are timeless. Go. Um, red lipstick. Blue jeans. Hanley's. Um, <laughs> let's play a game. Things that are not timeless. Um, microbangs. Mullets. Lurace jeans. Crocs. <laughs> um, wearing skirts over jeans. And just dresses over jeans. Um, also diphtheria is not timeless. I'm Dr. Dustin Edwards. And I'm Faith Cox. Welcome to Germomics, where we go to B from A in the most roundabout way, a mix of microbiology and history. In this series, we connect different aspects of modern life and society to mind groups through seemingly unconnected natural events, discoveries, and inventions. So how does timeless fashion connect to diphtheria? Let's find out. There is evidence of pants made of denim from Nimes, France, thus denim, and of this fabric being made into jeans in Genoa around 1800. And they dyed these jeans blue, and thus they were named Blue de Jeans. But when thinking about blue jeans, we often think of Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss was an immigrant, aged 18 and poor, when he arrived in the U.S. with his mother and brothers, and he helped his family by working in their dry goods store in New York. He eventually opened his own store in San Francisco in 1853 at the age of 25. At this store, he sold items such as clothing, bedding, combs, purses, handkerchiefs, and even tents. In 1871, a tailor named Jacob Davis in Reno, Nevada, was approached by a miner's wife asking him to make a pair of pants that could actually take some abuse. Inspired by different harnesses and fasteners he had around him, he decided he was going to try to add rivets to the weak spots on jeans, such as at the pockets or at the fly. And it worked. The riveted pants were much more durable, and he knew he was onto something big. The problem was, though, that Davis didn't have enough money to file a patent. He actually didn't even know how to go through the whole process. So he turned to the person who he was buying the fabric from, one Levi Strauss. The two struck a deal, and Davis ended up moving to San Francisco to oversee production of this new product, while Strauss managed the business side. The patent expired in 1890, yet 130 years later, one brand is synonymous with blue jeans and their association with the global cultural success of the American century. Levi Strauss moved to San Francisco to compete in the enormous sales opportunity generated by the California Gold Rush that started in 1848 or 1849. In the six years before Strauss moved to San Francisco, the town's population boomed from 200 people to over 36,000 people. But still, the town only had a population of 36,000, and it already had around 120 dry goods stores. What made Strauss successful, though, in this crowded space was that he could keep his stores stocked with his family business's supplies from back east. The California gold rush began just after the end of the Mexican-American War, and at that time, California was sparsely populated. There were about 6,500 Spanish-Mexican Californios, 700 foreigners, including Americans, and 150,000 Native Americans. Of those Native Americans, 120,000, or about 90%, would die from disease, starvation, or attacks and murder over the course of just a few years. However, the discovery of gold by James Marshall at a sawmill owned by John Sutter in Central California ushered in a mass migration of people from all over the world, with over 300,000 people moving there in search of riches. Early prospectors averaged daily gold finds that were worth 10 times the average wage of a laborer on the East Coast. What's interesting about gold in California was that it was heavily concentrated in gravel creek beds, so you could easily grab flakes or nuggets with just your hands. Individuals could also pan for gold using simple bowls and plates. Altogether, 750,000 pounds of gold 
were extracted during the California gold rush worth tens of billions of today's dollars. The impact of the value of the gold and the influx of the population hurried California to statehood in just 1850. And that's just crazy. So about four years earlier, a small group of only 33 American insurgents entered California without permission and started what was later known as the Bear Flag Revolt to form the Republic of California, which was a unrecognized breakaway state for about 25 days. And this was followed by the two years of the Mexican-American War, of which disagreements on the borders of Texas are partially to blame for causing that conflict. And then all of these people just like showed up for the gold and created this major population center. The Compromise of 1850 was a series of five bills passed by Congress to try to defuse the growing political confrontation of slavery that would eventually lead to the Civil War and included making California a free state as a balance to Texas, which was a slave state. And uh, this compromise also set the set Texas's borders to what they are today. Forty years after the California gold rush in 1896, gold is found in Canada by the Alaskan border, starting the Klondike Gold Rush, started by George Carmack and Skookum Jim Mason. Eventually, over $1 billion in gold would be extracted from Klondike. Similar to California, a mass migration of 100,000 people happened, including Jack London, who wrote The Call of the Wild. Different from California, though, the paths in Alaska and Western Canada are even more remote and inhospitable. The Chilkoot Trail and the White Pass Trail were the most prominent routes Chilkoot Trail was very steep. Um, I saw a photo of it, and it looked like a ski lift at a resort. So the, the it was extraordinarily steep and, and obviously covered in snow. And it was too steep for pack animals. So people had to try to move it themselves in stages up the mountain and across the pass. The White Pass Trail, on the other hand, was a newer route to the Klondike. It was not nearly as steep. However, it was just covered in mud, and it made it nearly impossible to try to get through it during the fall months. Conditions and travel were so rough that the Canadian police would not allow people to enter onto the trails unless they had over one year's worth of supplies, which ended up weighing nearly a ton, 2,000 pounds. Of the approximately 100,000 people who entered the Klondike, only about 4,000 people actually found gold. And the Klondike Gold Rush ended fairly quickly due to a variety of reasons, including the fact that gold was found elsewhere that was much easier to get to, including in Nome, Alaska. Nome was a lot easier to get to than the Klondike, and the gold was just laying on the beach. You didn't even need to stake a claim to the land. Between 1900 and 1909, the town reached a population of 20,000, with many of those coming from the Klondike, including Wyatt Earp who was earlier made famous at the gunfight at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. I was forced to watch that movie Tombstone by my count several hundred times. What do you mean forced and by whom? So I had a roommate and he really enjoyed doing country western dancing. And so he would go out fairly often, two, three times a week. And sometimes he would bring back a friend that he had met and he would put on Tombstone and then leave, like, towards his bedroom, I guess, to get cleaned up or whatever. <laughs> and so I would have to sit there and entertain their friend while watching this movie Tombstone. And then my friend would eventually come back and then start, like, quoting Tombstone. I'll be your huckleberry. Oh and God. then would leave. 
And so I have that movie completely memorized. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I mean, it's a good movie full of one-liners. <laughs> so at Nome, tent cities covered the shoreline. I saw pictures again of um, the Nome Gold Rush, and it really is, as far as I can see, these white tents all along the water. By 1910, though, there were only about 2,600 people left. However, Nome survives today as a permanent settlement and currently has a population of about 3,800 people, which is remarkable because it is quite distant and it's near the Arctic Circle and it has very long, very cold, very dark winters and very short and cool summers. Fifteen years after the gold rush in 1925, from November until July, the port at Nome had iced over. The town had one doctor, Curtis Welch, and four nurses. After the last ship had sailed in December, the doctor treated several small children for sore throats and tonsillitis. Over the next few weeks, several other children had similar symptoms and four died. By January, he began to observe a white pseudomembrane at the back of the throat of some children, a classic symptom of diphtheria. Unfortunately, all the diphtheria antitoxin he had in his office was expired, and while he ordered more antitoxin several months before, none had arrived before the port closed. Now, I want to note real quick that the antitoxin we're talking about now is different than the vaccine that's administered today. So this was just a treatment for diphtheria. It was not preventative. It was antibodies derived from inoculating a horse and then using the horse serum. Yes, yes, the horse's antibodies to then neutralize the pathogen. Realizing an epidemic could occur, the physician and town leaders held a meeting and they enacted a quarantine. See, just six years earlier, the Spanish flu had killed 50% of the Alaska native population there. The town feared that the diphtheria epidemic would have a near 100% mortality rate for the disease in that area. Dr. Welch sent a telegram. An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of 1 million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is the only form of transportation. Stop. I have made an application to the Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already. Stop. There are about 3,000 white natives in the district. There were three planes in Alaska in 1925, however, they were unsuitable for winter use and were dismantled at the time. In addition, all experienced pilots were down in the contiguous U.S. The town decided to try using sled dog teams across Alaska, 674 miles across Alaska in winter. Further, Dr. Welch calculated that the antitoxin would be viable for only about six days in such harsh conditions. So that means that they would have to make their way all across this enormous territory in just five and a half days. The plan would be that one would start in Nome and the other one in Nanana near Fairbanks in the eastern part of the territory and would need to meet in the middle in Nulato. Normally, the trip from just Nulato to Nome took about 30 days. However, there was one record that made it in nine days. However, all of this is much longer than five or six days. They were trying to make it in just a little over half of what was the record. Yes, and what was normally 30 days. In winter. In winter. In Alaska. In Alaska. The telegram was received, and all along the West Coast, over a million units of antitoxin were found and were sent up to Seattle and then by ship up to Seward, Alaska, but it would take some time for all of the antitoxin to arrive. However, 300,000 units were found in Anchorage and sent up to Nanana. While not enough to stop the epidemic, it was enough to try to treat 15 patients and could be enough to try to slow down the spread of diphtheria until the larger shipment arrived. 
In the meantime, Dr. Welch would use the rest of his expired antitoxin, despite it being less effective. The governor gave final approval, and on January 27th, the first dog sled relay began. The region was experiencing 20-year lows with temperature at about negative 50 to negative 62 Fahrenheit, which is insane. I've never even experienced, like, negatives. So, geez. In addition, there were, like, blizzard whiteout conditions with gale force and hurricane force winds. And because it was winter near the Arctic Circle, there were only about five hours of sunlight due to polar night. During the first leg of the relay, within hours, parts of the face of the first musher had already turned black from hypothermia. At the first checkpoint of Minto, from his team of 11 dogs, three were beginning to struggle and had to be left behind. By January 30th, the number of diphtheria cases reached 27, and yet another child had died. On New Year's Eve, on January 31st, Leonard Sapala and his lead dog, Togo, brought the antiserum the most hazardous and furthest distance, covering twice the distance of any other team, and he did it during a storm. So Sapala had an eight-year-old daughter who was at risk of developing a diphtheria, so he had like an obvious stake in the game, um, but he was elected by the town to do this, the longest and most hazardous portion because he was considered to be the most experienced of all of the sled dog drivers. So there was even this portion where it wasn't a route that was recommended to be taken on like a normal day under normal conditions, even on like a good day, good conditions. It was this last resort route that when taken can shave a whole day off travel. And he had taken it several times, but to do it, you have to cross this body of water. And in the body of water, it is frozen over and the wind weathers it and it gets developed these cracks that it's really easy for the dogs to like land their claws in and then break the ice. And so if you obviously do that too many times and like your dogs aren't over it, then you can fall through. But he was elected to cover this, not just one way, but both ways to get the antitoxin there and back. And he did it successfully. But apparently there was an eyewitness account that shortly after he did it, just like a couple hours after he had finished crossing it, the dogs had like trampled the ice so much that it was broken and you couldn't cross the river anymore. On February 2nd, on the final leg of the journey, Gunnar Kassen and his lead dog Balto arrived in Nome. Altogether, the trip took 127 hours, 20 teams with over 150 dogs, with several of these dogs perishing. However, the antitoxin was effective, the epidemic did end, and there was limited to about five to seven deaths recorded. However, it is unknown how many native lives were lost, but it is estimated to be at over 100. Today, there is a statue of Balto in Central Park, there is a movie called Balto, and there is an upcoming movie about Togo. And the Great Race of Mercy, as it was later called, is now commemorated each year by the Iditarod Trail Sled Race. The causative agent of diphtheria is Carinibacterium diphtheriae, also known as Klebs Leofler bacillus after the scientist who discovered it. It was discovered in 1884 by German bacteriologist Edward Klebs and Frederick Loeffler. Carinibacterium diphtheriae is a gram-positive pleomorphic bacilli. So gram-positive meaning it has simply a cell wall and an inner membrane, and pleomorphic describes its ability for the bacteria to change its shape based on its environment. There are three main subspecies that differ slightly in their colonal morphology and biochemical properties, such as their like ability to metabolize different nutrients 
and all three subspecies have the ability to be toxigenic and cause diphtheria. The actual toxigenicity is determined by whether a bacterial genome has a certain bacteriophage encoded in. Whenever a bacteriophage is integrated into a bacterial genome, they're called prophages. The phage genome is what contains the toxin gene, and the toxin can be expressed by the bacteria. In other words, if a bacterium does not have the prophage integrated into the genome, then it is considered a non-toxigenic strain. If it does have the prophage with the toxin gene integrated into the genome, then it's considered a toxigenic strain. Carinibacterium diphtheriae can also cause a cutaneous infection involving the skin, eyes, or the genitals, but we're going to focus on respiratory diphtheria. So the symptoms can be mild to severe, usually starting between two to five days after exposure, beginning with a sore throat and a fever. After that, the lymph nodes may begin to swell, and in severe cases, patients may develop a gray or white patch in the back of the throat called a pseudomembrane. The pseudomembrane can form in the mucous membranes where the bacteria is colonizing, which can be um, in the nasal tract or in the throat, but I'm going to focus on the pseudomembrane's development in the throat. So there, the pseudomembrane begins in small patches, but it can grow in size, eventually covering the entire back of the throat in a large patch, and then develop into a gray or black or green color. The disease is mainly spread through aerosolized respiratory droplets from coughing or sneezing, and the main virulence factor in diphtheria is the diphtheria toxin. The toxin inactivates eukaryotic elongation factor 2, which is essential for protein synthesis. Cells have to produce proteins to survive, so when this protein is inactivated, it will eventually cause cell death. After the cells die, immune cells then go to deal with all these dead cells in the throat, as well as colonizing bacteria, and eventually a coagulum of fibrin, white blood cells, and cellular debris due to cell death all form into the pseudomembrane. As the disease progresses, the pseudomembrane can change from being white or gray to having these patches of green or black due to necrosis. Eventually, the membrane can grow so large that it affects one's ability to breathe, and combined with the lymph node swelling, the membrane and lymph nodes can grow in size so much that they start to obstruct the airway and can eventually result in death. Another way you can die from diphtheria is that the toxin can become disseminated in the blood and cause damage to other organs. So this can be particularly damaging to the heart. The damage caused by the diphtheria toxin circulating in the blood and reaching the heart causes cell death. The heart muscle then becomes inflamed, and this inflammation can affect the heart's electrical impulses, ultimately causing irregular heartbeats and affecting the body's ability to pump blood. It can also reach the nerves and cause inflammation and then result in paralysis. It can also spread through the blood and result in necrosis of the liver and kidneys. Diphtheria is not common today. There is currently a vaccine available for diphtheria. It's grouped in with tetanus and pertussis, so there are different versions of this vaccine for different age groups. Diphtheria rates in the U.S. quickly declined after the introduction of the vaccine in the 1920s, with there being less than five reported cases of respiratory diphtheria in the last decade in the U.S. So say someone is to come down with diphtheria, there's also the antitoxin, which can be used as treatment. It does not technically have FDA approval, but it is allowed to be distributed to physicians by the FDA as an investigational new drug, meaning it can be given to patients who have a confirmed or probable case of diphtheria. So a confirmed case is when they have a clinical case from a toxigenic Carinibacterium diphtheriae, and the bacteria is isolated, or it is a case that can be epidemiologically linked to a laboratory-confirmed case, 
or they can have a probable case, which is when there's a clinically compatible case that is not laboratory confirmed and it's not epidemiologically linked to a laboratory confirmed case, but everything's pointing to them having diphtheria. So to recap, we talked about blue jeans and Levi Strauss, gold rushes in California and Alaska, Togo and Balto on the Great Race of Mercy, and diphtheria. Thank you for listening to episode 11, Antitoxin Togo, please. Show notes, transcripts, citations, and social media links are available on our website at germamix.com. So I have three dogs, and while they are wonderful, they could never do like what the sled dogs did. So I have a blind shih tzu named Bosco, a deaf shih tzu named Bella, and then a poodle named Sugar who just isn't always the brightest, and they don't tolerate like the rain well. In fact, they almost refuse to like go out in the rain and go to the bathroom. They'd rather hold it, but we make them go outside anyways. They do um, better in the snow. They have little coats that they wear in the fall and the winter, so they tolerate snow a little bit better, except they're all short. So my two little Shih Tzu's legs, their legs are only like between four to six inches long. And I remember one year a while back, we did get like a good amount of snow and the snow drifts were like over six inches. And so my dog, Bosco, he had to like bunny hop around through the snow because it was too deep for him to tread through. So there's probably not going to be a statue of your Shih Tzu's in Central Park. No, something better. They're lap dogs, so they keep your toes warm. <laughs>